and welcome back to another episode of Ken Reads the Classics. Now, this next story is a continuation of our reading of Stephen Leacock's Nonsense Novels, a series of short stories written by Stephen Leacock, oddly enough. And before we get into this, I want to talk a little bit about some of the terms that show up in this book. The first term of concern shows up in the title, Guido the Gimlet of Ghent. Now, in the U.S., Guido is a ethnic slur, a derogatory term uh, referring to people of Italian descent. So I was a little worried that this would be a derogatory story about an Italian, um, but it turns out that Guido is, generally speaking, only a ethnic slur in the United States, and it only became that somewhere in the late uh, 1980s, maybe early 1980s. It certainly wasn't an ethnic slur that Leacock wanted to use, and especially as I read the story entirely, he does not mean to use Guido as an ethnic slur, simply the name Guido, which is um, similar to the French word or name Guy. With regards to the other terms, I'm going to explain them as they show up in the story. So I'll take a little bit of a break and explain what that term means and then move on with the story. Understand these were terms that I had to look up, so I'm not trying to talk down to my audience. I'm just trying to say, hey, I had to look these things up. I didn't know what they were. And now I do, and I'm going to share that with you all. So... Without further ado, here is the next book, short story number three in Stephen Leacock's book, Nonsense Novels. Guido, the Gimlet of Ghent, a romance of chivalry. And it just occurs to me that I should have looked up the word gimlet because I didn't know what that means. And there's two meanings here. Uh, one is a small T-shaped tool with a screw tip for boring holes. And the second is a cocktail of gin or sometimes vodka and lime juice. Now, I think as having read the story, the first meaning is probably the most appropriate. A small T-shaped tool with a screw tip for boring holes. So here we are. Guido the Gimlet of Ghent. A Romance of Chivalry It was in the flood tide of chivalry. Knighthood was in the pod. The sun was slowly setting in the east, rising and falling occasionally as it subsided, and illuminating with its dying beams the towers of the grim castle of Buggensburg. Now, Buggensburg is just a made-up castle as far as I can tell. Isolde the Slender stood upon an embattled turret of the castle. Her arms were outstretched to the empty air, and her face, upturned as if in colloquy with heaven, was distraught with yearning. Now, colloquy is a term that means in conversation with, or having a conversation. Anon, she murmured, Guido, and bewiles a deep sigh rent her breast. Sylph-like and ethereal in her beauty, she scarcely seemed to breathe. Now, sylph is an air spirit. 
So Isolde was sylph-like and ethereal in her beauty. She scarcely seemed to breathe. In fact, she hardly did. Willowy and slender in form, she was as graceful as a meridian of longitude. Her body seemed almost too frail for motion, while her features were of a mold so delicate as to preclude all thought of intellectual operation. She was begirt with a flowing kirtle of deep blue, bebound with a belt bebuckled with a silvern clasp, while about her waist a stomacher of point lace ended in the ruffled farthingale at her throat. On her head she bore a sugar-loaf hat, shaped like an extinguisher, and pointing backward at an angle of 45 degrees. Wow, now that paragraph had about seven terms uh, that I need to explain, or at least I needed to look up. Uh, the first one is kirtle, a one-piece garment similar to a dress. It's generally worn over your clothing or over a smock. A stomacher is a triangular panel that fills in the front opening of a bodice. A farthingale is a structure that supports clothing, in this case big hoops, and they open up a dress or other garment. And now we have sugarloaf hat, something I had never heard of before. A sugarloaf hat is a tall tapering hat. The name comes from the loaves that sugar came in back in the day, I guess. So I guess that wasn't seven terms, but that was a lot. So let's reread that paragraph. She was begirt with a flowing kirtle of deep blue, bebound with a belt Bebuckled with a silvern clasp, while about her waist a stomacher of point lace ended in the ruffled farthingale at her throat. On her head she bore a sugarloaf hat, shaped like an extinguisher, and pointing backward at an angle of forty-five degrees. Guido, she murmured, Guido! And erstwhile she would wring her hands as one distraught and mutter, He cometh not! The sun sank and night fell, enwrapping in the shadow the frowning castle of Buggensburg and the ancient city of Ghent at its foot. And as the darkness gathered, the windows of the castle shone out with fiery red, for it was Yuletide, and it was wassail all in the great hall of the castle. And this night the Margrave of Buggensburg made him a feast, and celebrated the betrothal of his hold, his daughter, with Tancred the Tenspot. And to the feast he had bidden all his liege lords and vassals, Hubert the Husky, Edward the Earwig, Rollo the Rumbottle, and many others. In the meantime, the Lady Isolde stood upon the battlements and mourned for the absent Guido. The love of Guido and Isolde was of that pure and almost divine type, found only in the Middle Ages. They had never seen one another. Guido had never seen Isolde, and Isolde had never seen Guido. They had never heard one another speak. They had never been together. They did not know one another. Yet they loved. Their love had sprung into being suddenly and romantically, with all the mystic charm which is love's greatest happiness. Years before, Guido had seen the name of Isolde the Slender painted on a fence. He had turned pale, 
fallen into a swoon, and started at once for Jerusalem. On the very same day, Isolde, in passing through the streets of Ghent, had seen the coat of arms of Guido hanging on a clothesline. She had fallen back into the arms of her tire woman, more dead than alive. All right, so that brings up another term we need to talk about, and that is a tire woman. And this is a female dresser, um, most often used in a theater. But in this case, apparently accompanies Isolde so that she doesn't fall when she faints for love of Guido. All right, moving on. Since that day, they had loved. Isolde would wander forth from the castle at earliest morn with the name of Guido on her lips. She told his name to the trees. She whispered it to the flowers. She breathed it to the birds. Quite a lot of them knew it. At times she would ride her palfrey along the sands of the sea and call Guido to the waves. At other times she would tell it to the grass or even to a stick of cordwood or a ton of coal. Now this gives us another moment to pause. A palfrey is a type of riding horse, um, not something strong that would be like a workhorse, but something she would ride her palfrey along the sands of the sea so that she could call Guido to the waves. Ah, Isolde, you are truly in love. Guido and Isolde, though they had never met, cherished each the features of the other. Beneath his coat of mail, Guido carried a miniature of Isolde, carven on ivory. He had found it at the bottom of the castle crag, between the castle and the old town of Ghent at its foot. How did he know that it was Isolde? There was no need for him to ask. His heart had spoken. The eye of love cannot be deceived. And Isolde? She too cherished beneath her stomacher a miniature of Guido the Gimlet. She had of it of a traveling chapman in whose pack she had discovered it and had paid its price in pearls. How had she known that he it was? That is... That it was he? Because of the coat of arms emblazoned beneath the miniature, the same heraldic design that had first shaken her to the heart, sleeping or waking, it was ever before her eyes, a lion, proper, quartered in a field of ghouls, and a dog, improper, three quarters, in a field of buckwheat. Now, ghouls, spelled G-U-L-E-S, is um, a term for red used in... Uh, I'll read the definition. Red as a heraldic tincture. So there you have it. You know what I know. All right. And if the love of Isolde burned thus purely for Guido, the love of Guido burned for Isolde with a flame no less pure. No sooner had love entered Guido's heart than he had determined to do some great feat of emprise or adventure, some high achievement of daring do which should make him worthy to woo her. He placed himself under a vow that he would eat nothing, save only food, and drink nothing, save only liquor, till such season as he should have performed his feat. For this cause, he had at once set out for Jerusalem to kill a Saracen for her. Now, Saracen was the term that they used for Muslims back in um, this time. He killed one, 
quite a large one. Still under his vow, he set out again at once to the very confines of Pannonia, determined to kill a Turk for her. From Pannonia, he passed into the highlands of Britain, where he killed her a Caledonian. Now, Pannonia is a former part of the former Roman Empire that now touches Austria, Hungary, Serbia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and uh, that part of Europe. So he was off to kill a Turk in those lands and a Caledonian in the highlands of Britain. Seems like he made his goal. Every year and every month, Guido performed for Isolde some new achievement of emprise. And in the meantime, Isolde waited. It was not that suitors were lacking. Isolde the Slender had suitors in plenty, ready to do her lightest hest. That just means a slightest request or any request. Well, actually, no. Uh, easiest request or demand, I think I would translate that as <laughs> just knowing the tenor of the book. Feats of arms were done daily for her sake. To win her love, suitors were willing to vow themselves to perdition. For Isolde's sake, Otto the Otter had cast himself into the sea. Conrad the Coconut had hurled himself from the highest battlement of the castle, head first into the mud. Hugo the Hopeless had hanged himself by the waistband to a hickory tree and had refused all efforts to dislodge him. For her sake, Siegfried the Susceptible had swallowed sulfuric acid. But he sold the slender was heedless of the court thus paid to her. In vain, her stepmother, Agatha the Angular, urged her to marry. In vain, her father, the Margrave of Buggensburg, commanded her to choose one or the other of the suitors. Her heart remained unswervingly true to the gimlet. From time to time, love tokens passed between the lovers. From Jerusalem, Guido had sent to her a stick with a notch in it to signify his undying constancy. From Pannonia, he sent a piece of board. And from Venetia, about two feet of scantling. All these Isolde treasured. At night, they lay beneath her pillow. Now, scantling is defined as a measurement of prescribed size, dimensions, or cross-sectional areas. So he sent her two feet. <laughs> All right, and she kept it under her pillow. Then, after years of wandering, Guido had determined to crown his love with a final achievement for Isolde's sake. I wonder what Guido has in store to win Isolde's heart. We're going to find out right after this break. And we're back from the break. And now we're going to learn what crazy scheme Guido has cooked up to win the heart of Isolde. And just fair warning, it's a complicated, multi-stepped plan. Here we go. It was his design to return to Ghent, to scale by night the castle cliff, 
and to prove his love for Isolde by killing her father for her, casting her stepmother from the battlements, and burning the castle, and then, of course, carrying her away. This design he was now hastening to put into execution. Attended by 50 trusty followers under the lead of Carlo the Corkscrew and Beowulf the Broad All, he had made his way to Ghent. Under cover of night, they had reached the foot of the castle cliff, and now, on their hands and knees in single file, they were crawling round and round the spiral path that led up to the gate of the fortress. At six of the clock, they had spiraled once. At seven of the clock, they had reappeared at the second round, and as the feast in the hall reached its height, they reappeared on the fourth lap. Guido the Gimlet was in the lead. His coat of mail was hidden beneath a party-colored cloak, and he bore in his hand a horn. By arrangement, he was to penetrate into the castle by the postern gate in disguise, steal from the margrave by artifice the key of the great door, and then by a blast of his horn summon his followers to the assault. Alas, there was need for haste, for at this very yuletide, on this very night, the margrave, wearied of his soul's resistance, had determined to bestow her hand upon Tancred the Tenspot. It was wassail all in the great hall. And this makes me remember that I haven't mentioned wassail yet. Well, wassail was caroling before there was caroling. And they went uh, around and sang at people's houses. And as they sang, their reward would be wassail or wassail. Depends on how you want to pronounce it. And that is a drink made with uh, apples and citrus fruits like oranges and cloves. It's quite delicious. All right. Well, anyway, it was wassail all in the great hall. The huge margrave, seated at the head of the board, drained flagon after flagon of wine and pledged deep the health of Tancred the Tenspot, who sat plumed and armored beside him. Great was the merriment of the margrave, for beside him, crouched upon the floor, was a new jester, whom the sensual had just admitted by the postern gate, and the novelty of whose jests made the huge sides of the margrave shake and shake again. <laughs> now I need to define sensual, and that is the steward or uh, mayordomo of a castle. Odds bodkins, he roared, but the tale is as rare as it is new. And so the wagoner said to the pilgrim that sith he had asked him to put him off the wagon at that town, put him off he must, albeit it was but the small of the night, by St. Pancras, whence hath the fellow so novel a tale? Nay, tell it me once more, haply may I remember it. And the baron fell back in a perfect paroxysm of merriment. As he fell back, Guido, for the disguised jester was none other than he, that is, than him, sprang forward and seized from the girdle of the margrave the key of the great door that dangled at his waist. Then, casting aside the jester's cloak and cap, he rose to his full height, standing in his coat of mail. In one hand he brandished the double-headed mace of the crusader, and in the other a horn. The guests sprang to their feet, their hands upon their daggers. Guido the gimlet, they cried. Hold, said Guido. I have you in my power. 
Then, placing the horn to his lips and drawing a deep breath, he blew with his utmost force. And then again he blew, blew like anything. Not a sound came. The horn wouldn't blow. Seize him, cried the baron. Stop, said Guido. I claim the laws of chivalry. I am here to seek the Lady Isolde, betrothed by you to Tancred. Let me fight Tancred in single combat, man to man. A shout of approbation gave consent. The combat that followed was terrific. First, Guido, raising his mace high in the air with both hands, brought it down with terrible force on Tancred's mailed head. Then Guido stood still, and Tancred, raising his mace in the air, brought it down upon Guido's head. Then Tancred stood still and turned his back. And Guido, swinging his mace sideways, gave him a terrific blow from behind, midway, right center. Tancred returned the blow. Then Tancred knelt down on his hands and knees, and Guido brought the mace down on his back. It was a sheer contest of skill and agility. For a time, the issue was doubtful. Then Tancred's armor began to bend. His blows weakened. He fell prone. Guido pressed his advantage and hammered him out as flat as a sardine can. Then, placing his foot on Tancred's chest, he lowered his visor and looked around about him. At this second, there was a resounding shriek. Isolde the Slender, alarmed by the sound of the blows, precipitated herself into the room. For a moment, the lovers looked into each other's faces. Then, with their countenances distraught with agony, they fell swooning in different directions. There had been a mistake. Guido was not Guido, and Isolde was not Isolde. They were wrong about the miniatures. Each of them was a picture of somebody else. Torrents of remorse flooded over the lovers' hearts. Isolde thought of the unhappy Tancred, hammered out as flat as a picture card and hopelessly spoilt of Conrad the Coconut, head first in the mud, and Siegfried the Susceptible, coiled up with agonies of sulfuric acid. Guido thought of the dead Saracens and the slaughtered Turks, and all for nothing. The guerdon of their love had proved vain. Each of them was not what the other had thought. So it is ever with the loves of this world, and herein is the medieval allegory of this tale. The hearts of the two lovers broke together. They expired. Meantime, Carlo the Corkscrew and Beowulf the Broadall and their forty followers were hustling down the spirals as fast as they could crawl, hind end uppermost. Well, that concludes another story by Stephen Leacock. Please join me next time as we continue reading from his book, Nonsense Novels, in the next episode of Ken Reads the Classics.